and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Sam Graywell, who is the founder and publisher of The Pointer, an independent media outlet covering news and politics out of Brampton and Mississauga. If you're a political nerd, especially when it comes to City Hall matters, these have been two very interesting locations lately, but today we're just focusing on the view from Brampton. On Monday, Patrick Brown announced that he would indeed be running for re-election as the mayor of Brampton. It was a no-brainer because it was pretty unlikely that Brown was going to be allowed back into the conservative leadership race. But it's also far from certain that Brown has the political juice to even get his old job back as the head of the Flower City. Yes, that is Brampton's real nickname. This week, we will look at Brown's controversies through the eyes of someone that knows them best and someone that understands that local politics matter. And that's the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. If you don't follow Brampton City Hall closely, Patrick Brown's journey until his July 5th ouster from the Conservative leadership race has been a pretty good story. Yes, he was kicked out as Progressive Conservative leader in 2018, and the details around the allegations of sexual impropriety that forced him out have become somewhat muddied in the aftermath, but... He seemed to land on his feet and do some good work as the mayor of Brampton, thus assuring the status as the comeback kid. But that was the narrative. And as Graywell will tell you, the narrative isn't always the story. Those watching Brampton City Hall have been noting a different Patrick Brown. A Brown who has had his legal fees covered by the city and opens up closed hockey rinks in the middle of a pandemic lockdown for his friends. It's a Brown who has had city staff support his extracurricular political activities and also hands out posh contracts to his friends, and they end up getting specious results in the end. In fact, when it comes to council business in Brampton, Brown has actually canceled more meetings than he's attended lately. By sheer coincidence, the pointer was launched the same year that Brown was first elected as the mayor of Brampton. Its goal was to do a deep dive of issues and policy at City Hall, and they have been fairly successful in their mission to go beyond the council chambers to talk about the issues affecting residents in two of Canada's biggest cities. We often forget that, don't we? We think that Brampton and Mississauga are essentially appendages of Toronto, but they are the ninth and seventh largest cities in the country, respectively. So did the national media miss the more important story about Brown by not covering his record at Brampton City Hall? Sam Graywall certainly thinks so, and he's going to talk about that on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast. We will talk about his career in journalism, why he started The Pointer, and why The Pointer's mission is different from a lot of the usual coverage of municipal governments, especially in Peel Region. We will also talk about the character of Brampton and how the city's rapid growth is having an effect on its politics and how the city's diverse communities play a role in who gets elected as mayor and why. And finally, we will discuss Brown's political record at Brampton City Hall, why that's the real story coming out of his failed leadership bid, and why Graywell was hoping that Brown would try and hold on to the mayor's chain just a few days before the man himself filed for re-election. So I caught up with Sam Graywell last week via Zoom. Okay, Sam Graywell, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. Well, let's start with uh, just kind of maybe a quick primer on on who you are and and how how you start and how and why you started uh, the pointer as a, as a news service in in Brampton and Mississauga. Yeah, so uh, my I, I got into journalism a long time ago, back in the early nineties. I I had launched actually a national magazine uh, called Diverge, and uh, I ran that. For a while, I, I went back and did some grad uh, grad work at school. I got a grad degree and my master's degree. And then I was basically recruited right out of that program by the Toronto Star. Uh, I hadn't really thought about going into newspapering, but uh, through, you know, through a couple of connections, they, um, they, they reached out. And uh, next thing I know, I, I had a... It was about an 18 year career at the Toronto star, 18, 19 years. I started in the nineties <laughs> and I worked are uh, doing a lot of different things, feature writing and traveling a lot and, and then some editing and then uh, political beats, the political team, municipal politics. And then I, I decided, uh, you know, when, when things were going in different directions because of the reality 
uh, of the space, I, I, I just thought at a certain point, even though I enjoyed working for the star, I, um, I left in 20, was it 2016, 2016 or 2017. And then I started the pointer about a year later, mm-hmm. we launched, took a while to get, um, you know, all the planning done and the way I wanted to do it and, uh, setting up everything from staffing to legal stuff to the web, the website took a while, but anyway, we launched, um, in 2018 in Brampton. And uh, the plan was to launch in different markets pretty much every year. 2019, we launched in Mississauga. So we had pretty much all appeal covered, the sixth and the ninth largest cities in the country, huge markets combined about 1.5, 1.6 million. We cover Caledon quite a bit as well, which Mm. is part of Appeal, but it's not an official platform. We're now looking to expand, uh, hopefully, I do like a soft launch in Niagara region to cover Niagara. And then we're looking at maybe getting into York, which would be Markham and Vaughan. And then continuing in the GTA and um, maybe even outside of Ontario uh, markets that need it. I don't need to tell you what's <laughs> local, local news, local journalism. Mm-hmm. Over the last 10, 10, 12 years, we really started to see the withdrawal of the mainstream media from local coverage probably started to see it in about 07, 08, but by, by 2010, 2012, we were like really starting to feel it. So yeah, the pointer just tries to fill that gap and we're a longer form. We're more investigative, more data driven. We tend not to do much of the breaking stories. We don't do a lot of the process stories. We don't cover council sort of like day to day. We pick, you know, the major issues, like the key things that have like deep impact on taxpayers, on the residents, our readers. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so that's what we're all about. It's been been a lot of fun. Um, want to keep going and keep expanding. It's great to see people like you in the same space, picking up where the mainstream media is, is sort of vacated or dramatically contracted. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it strikes me and it, it sort of struck me as, as preparing to talk to you today. Um, we kind of got used to at least, you know, p- portions of Peel region sort of being lumped in with Toronto. We, we get used to saying greater Toronto area and, you know, assuming that, you know, kind of the issues that matter to Brampton are the same issues that maybe matter in Etobicoke and Scarborough. And I think this sort of gets to what you're talking about that, uh, yeah, the Toronto Star does, does still have a, a GTA section, uh, but at the same time, you know, Brampton and Mississauga are big cities in their own right that have issues unique to them and, and should deserve sort of independent coverage from, from journalists based in those cities. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, just like Guelph, you know, um, Guelph and, 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 and the, all, the, all the communities you know, surrounding Guelph, um, if you look at like an area like Brantford, mm. you know, County, um, you know, Hamilton, you know, in terms of Niagara, you, you see the same thing. Like the, there tends to be this um, default, this, this longstanding tradition of, of lumping, you know, communities together because, you know, segmenting content and journalism is a bit difficult so <laughs> to you know to, to to have you know journalism that that supposedly covers a large region or a large area but you know it, it's it's done in in a consolidated manner doesn't really give all of those individual communities and all of the unique issues you know, the complexities, the dynamics that are very local, you know, these are very localized issues, very localized dynamics, localized political cultures, uh, you know, you know, particular individuals that are the decision makers who need to be covered, you know, very, as I said, very individually, because they have so much influence on the lives of taxpayers, community members, residents, you know, in the jurisdiction where those jurors, where those those decision makers, those so-called leaders um, have influence where they, where they work, where they operate. That, that I, I find the consolidation of media that we saw starting in the 80s 
you know, to the point where, you know, for example, a lot of the community newspapers were owned either by Post Media or Torstar. Tor mm -hmm. So sort of infamously, the deal that those two companies struck, you know, exchanging uh, dozens and do dozens of papers in, in a, you know, ostensibly to, you know, to, to provide you know, continued good journalism, but realistically <laughs> to justify contracting journalism. We know that after the Post Media Tour Star deal was done, a lot of papers were shut down immediately after. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that just speaks to the problems with this more corporate model of journalism uh, under a, con a consolidation strategy, you know, that doesn't really actually consider what journalism's role is. You know, this key crucial element in our democracy you know, in our society, you know, where you have an institution that holds everything accountable. Right. Uh, there's nothing like it. It's, it's the only institution that's protected constitutionally for a reason. Uh, it, it plays a, a foundational, a fundamental role, you know, in, in our democracy, in our civil society. And without journalism being approached that way, you see all kinds of breakdowns. And, and I think one of the breakdowns was within the institution itself. Mm -hmm. I actually see what's happened as the revenue model was disrupted because of, you know, online platforms basically taking all of the ad revenue away from the big corporate consolidated media organizations. I, I actually think ultimately it'll be a good thing. Mm. Uh, I think that revenue disruption that's, basically crippled, you know, a lot of the, the, the mainstream media platforms, I, I think for people like you, for me, all the other startups and companies that will succeed, they'll succeed because, you know, not consolidation, not, you know, revenue, um, you know, re revenue types of consolidation, revenue uh, confluence with, with, with journalism content, it'll be quite different. They'll succeed purely because of the service that they provide. You know, mm -hmm. if you do journalism, if you do it, what it's supposed to achieve, the, the public will support it. And, and I think that what we're going to see in, you know, 10 years, maybe 15 years, we, we will see who is left standing. Mm -hmm. And I suspect it's going to be the platforms, the organizations that, you know, that truly engender what journalism is all about. Trust, mm -hmm. community. You know, covering what needs to be covered, and you know the revenue is secondary. Yes, you need revenue to function, but our model is that you you focus on the journalism first, and you trust the public that if you do the type of journalism they can put their faith in, mm. they support you in ways that will make you feasible. That'll that'll allow that revenue to come in, and that's basically what we do in a nutshell. So. Make no. <laughs> <laughs> so let me uh, ask you this, um, you know, that consolidation you're talking about tends to, you know, paint with a broad brush. And I can't think of maybe at least in, in Ontario, anyway, a community that's probably more misunderstood than Brampton um, or perhaps not even well understood at all because people make certain assumptions. So, I mean, when. What what are your what what are you, I'll, I'll phrase it this way? What are some of your favorite misconceptions about Brampton? <laughs> uh, well, I'll I'll use an example. So, okay. okay, so so Brampton is a very large, uh, I say sick, but most of your listeners would be more familiar with the term Sikh or the pronunciation Sikh. Mm -hmm. So Brampton has probably the largest Sikh community in Canada. It might. It might be close to the largest Sikh community outside of India. I'm not sure about that. There'd be, there'd be places in the UK and um, um, possibly Surrey, BC that would be close, but, but it's, it's right up there. So yesterday we had a, a, you know, a pretty dramatic news story. Raputaman Singh Malik, the, the gentleman who was, charged and eventually acquitted, found not guilty uh, in the Air India trial uh, regarding the bombing of the, the Air India flight 
Um, and the way the coverage, it, a lot of the mainstream media coverage sort of stereotyped a lot of the Sikh community, which again, this is going to directly impact Brampton. Mm. You're, you're talking about probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about a third of the city's population would identify as Sikh, something like that, somewhere between a quarter to a third, might even be more than a third, but it's it's in that ballpark would, would be Sikh Canadians. So, you know, a good, you know, 150 to 200,000 in, individuals. Um, it, if you're going to cover the community with broad, using broad strokes, the way a lot of the mainstream media did yesterday and continues to do today, in light of the killing of Mr. Malik, a very controversial figure, but, but the way the Sikh community has been portrayed, thus the way a lot of Brampton's identity would get shaped by this mainstream media narrative doesn't include a lot of voices, for example, from Brampton's Sikh community. Mm. So you have outside observers in, in, in most cases, I would say, have a fair bit of knowledge. You know, some, some individuals who covered journalists and former journalists who covered the Air India case and the Air India story for, God, it unfolded over almost 20 years. Um, but, and they did, you know, they, an okay job these last couple of days when I've heard some of them invited on, you know, the various mainstream platforms or quoted you know, in the newspapers, on TV, whatever it might be. But almost all of those examples in terms of characterizing very broadly aspects of the Sikh community as a whole, mm-hmm. like speaking on behalf of like the political identity of, of Sikhs or a particular group of Sikhs, what, what these people, I'm not even going to use the word because it's quite <laughs> offensive. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, a- a- as though all Sikhs have agitated for an independent homeland in, in India to have part of Punjab state where, where a lot of Sikhs are from, to have part of it carved out as an independent homeland. And this is what the p- political strife, you know, and some of the um, some of the as is described sometimes, quote, militancy or extremism was behind this effort to gain an independent Sikh homeland. The way that it was described, even by so-called experienced journalists, mm-hmm. the way it's characterized, the way the entire community, you know, the, this, this word that I don't even use that's associated with these people, you know, who, who have struggled and who have advocated for an independent Sikh homeland. Um, I, I just shook my head because, <laughs> you know, it, it is going to inevitably, because of the demographics, influence the way Brampton is perceived. Right. And, you know, I, I just, I continue, you know, as I, as I watch the way the mainstream media operates, the way social media operates, the way um, these biases, misperceptions, the, these inaccurate types of, uh, narratives that get thrust out there, the way they're created, the way they're developed, you know, the institutions that allow them to develop uh, for, for, an, for an institution like journalism that's supposed to be all about accuracy and trust. Hmm. It amazes me what little attention these organizations and the professionals who work within these journalism organizations, what, what they fail to think about you know, the, the neglect in their coverage. And, and when you ask me about the way Brampton is misunderstood, you know, it, it, it's things like that. It's, you know, instead of, you know, I won't name a particular platform, but any one of the big platforms, instead of investing, you know, with minimal resources, you know, have one reporter even mm. uh, based there who covers it day in, day out, knows the lay of the land, knows it well, you know, a good journalist who's willing to, you know, get out into the community, willing to bring context, you know, and all the layers of that we need in journalism to get an accurate picture of things. Instead of investing in those resources, every time something, every time, you know, most often when something happens, 
they're they're caught flat-footed and they parachute in and it's this really problematic kind of disjointed coverage it's 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 very patchy it it's quite often not accurate at all it it sort of gravitates to so-called talking heads and community leaders mm. but the actual individuals on the ground who know what's going on who've done the heavy lifting who've been at the heart of a lot of these issues for decades you know you, you just don't see the work being done that's hard work you need you need to do your job and um you know when you don't have that type of representation you get this sketchy really amateurish approach and, and then you get a lack of proper nuance and texture and understanding about a community and you get, you know, as you said, uh, a place that, you know, instead of being better understood, it's worse. <laughs> the understanding mm -hmm. is, even, is even worse. It's even more inaccurate. And you're talking about a very Brampton example, but I mean, Patrick Brown's the mayor of Brampton, you know, yeah. <laughs> and he wants to be the prime minister. Right. <laughs> it did one national outlet, you know, when he made it clear six, seven months ago, that he was going to vie to be the prime minister, the mm -hmm. CPC leader, i.e. ultimately wanted to be the prime minister, did one national outlet, you know, go in and say, well, what's he done as mayor? Like, shouldn't we know what he did as mayor? We've reported it's been an absolute just nightmare, like, like the worst municipal governance. I've been doing this for 30 years. Mm. I've covered and my name is behind reporting on some of the biggest municipal scandals in the country. You know, I've been at the forefront of effectively, you know, bringing down, you know, big time, big name politicians. And I have never seen anything even close to as bad as what I've witnessed over the last three and a half years of Patrick Brown as mayor. Like, you know, we've, you know, we've daily reported on just the, the egregious, just the utter, you know, destruction of democracy in Brampton mm -hmm. inside because of this, this individual. And he had a track record. He had a track record before he even got here. But, but where was the national media covering him as a CPC candidate? Right. Going in to explore, <laughs> well, what did you do over the last three and a half years? Well, wait a second. If you want to be prime minister, well, why are you implicated, you know, in a scandal that saw, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars of contracts going out to your friends and Brampton doesn't even know what work was done for it. The counselors didn't even know you had a relationship with these people who got the contracts. Why were you involved in scandals that saw the FOI process illegally moved out of council's control? Why were you involved in you know, a scandal that saw the internal audit process moved out, out of council's purview so mm -hmm. that there could be oversight? Why were you involved in scandals, you know, around just absolutely alarming hiring that took place under you, that you orchestrated, you know, people <laughs> who literally had engaged in flat out corruption, for example, in Niagara region, as defined by the Ontario Ombudsman, when he investigated what had been going on in Niagara region a few years ago, Patrick Brown brings some of these people and puts them into the top jobs you know, the head of communications, strategic communications, was a guy who that had been labeled as being corrupt by the Ontario Ombudsman. Mm -hmm. the, CEO, the head of the entire bureaucracy was implicated in that same scandal in Niagara. Brown, through his conservative connections, you know, installs them into top positions in Brampton. So is that the way you're going to behave as prime minister? Or are you going to engage in the corruption of oversight mechanisms and institutions in Ottawa? Are you going to put corrupt individuals in key staff positions, you know, as prime minister? Mm -hmm. no, but there, none of this examination was done. There was no investigation. There was no journalism being done by the national outlets that are covering him as a CPC candidate. And now with everything that's blown up in the last week and a half, I've done like, you know, 15 media interviews. <laughs> Journalists from these national platforms have said to me, Sam, we have no idea what's going on in Brampton. Like yeah. we have no clue like what's been happening. Yeah. And I, now with 
scandal around Patrick Brown. Can you fill us in on everything? <laughs> and I'm like just shaking my head thinking, wow. <laughs> get, get a pointer subscription and you can get filled in, I think is, is probably the, the too long didn't read version of that. <laughs> the board. Like, you know, when Thunder Bay, when everything happened in Thunder Bay with First Nations communities and our indigenous, you know, communities, and, and I started to like observe the coverage mm-hmm. and, and like this parish shooting in and scrambling. It's like, well, why weren't you in Thunder Bay? The Globe, to their credit, you know, they opened up, well, I wouldn't call it a bureau, but, you know, they sent a journalist or two uh, in for, you know, I don't know if I would call it a permanent, but less temporary type of assignment. So they, they should get a little bit of credit for at least realizing, you know, these holes. But, but, but these, these outlets, whether they're regional or national or provincial, it, you know, you know it because you, you would see it in Guelph. Um, I, I, just, I just wonder how they call themselves, you know, the national media. And, mm. and if they oh well, we cover Ottawa. Well, no, not really. Because Ottawa is just an extension of how federal policy impact people in their backyard at the local level. And if you do nothing to make those connections, you know, if you have no clue what Patrick Brown's been doing in Brampton, but now he wants to become the prime minister and you're going to figure out what he would be like as a prime minister by examining and reporting on what he's been like as a mayor. Like, if you're not going to do that, that's a real disservice to Canadians. Look at what happened with Donald Trump. Sure. Down states. Well, you know, I wonder the media down there, they admitted we abdicated our responsibility. We we gave this guy a pa- we but but the people in, in smaller markets, people who were familiar with the way he behaved, like let's say in Florida or in New York, you right. know, or other places where he did business or where he had certain involvements. Or Scotland. Sorry. Or Scotland. <laughs> Scotland, you know, these, you know, but but the mainstream media kind of saw him as this novelty act mm. and, uh, and they admitted, you know, once it was too late and once many of the democratic institutions down in the United States had been eroded and the attack on their democracy, you know, had gone too far, the, the, then the mainstream media and the big media and the, the corporate media started to say, geez, like, why didn't we cover him properly going back to like 2015, 2016, you know, when it was clear that he was serious about becoming the president well i i hate i hate to interrupt when you're on a roll Um, yeah (laughs) but i i wonder if that gets back to some of the things we were talking about earlier just you know people dismiss brampton it's part of the gta um how much damage can patrick brown could could he have done in brampton as mayor you know there are a lot of misconceptions built in here just about how and I think a misconception is too about how important it is who you elect to city hall. And I think, you know, we see that with low voter voter turnout at some of our municipal elections. People underestimate just, you know, how important it is to elect people in these positions. And the, the other thing I would point out too is that and one of the things that certainly vexed me at the time and maybe vexes me still to this day is that Patrick Brown beat an incumbent mayor um, to become the mayor of Brampton, even though, to my knowledge, he had never lived in the city. And um, I mean, that, that seems to be just going, getting back to sort of the, the basics of all this, that, that is something that I, I'm not sure has ever really been thoroughly examined, at least through the provincial or national media. Yeah. And I mean, that, that it's, it's a complicated matter to try to sort of to uh, unfold. Mm. I, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll try to be as succinct as I can, but <laughs> when you have hyper growth, so, so Linda Jeffrey, you know, she was a, a fairly popular liberal Ontario, liberal cabinet minister, fairly high profile, some fairly big uh, cabinet portfolios, like, you know, um, municipal affairs and housing, for example, she was minister, a couple of other ministerial portfolios that she had. <clears throat> and, um, you know, you would think that, uh, you know, having uh, a fairly brief, but but certainly a um, an established city hall career as a councillor prior to her entry into provincial politics as an MPP and eventually a minister uh, at Queen's Park with the Liberals, um, 
that that she would have had, you know, a fair bit of support and it would have been more difficult for Patrick Brown. But this is where dynamics in Brampton are, are very unique. And people in, on, on in, for example, in Toronto would just not really understand this in, you know, intuitively, like they just, they wouldn't be used to these dynamics, but mm-hmm. have a hyper growth community. Like, so let's go back a little bit. So Brampton, you know, 30, 40 years ago was only, you know, about a hundred, 150,000 people. Mm-hmm. And then it quadruples in four decades. Right. Mm-hmm. With all of that growth, you have a very fluid political culture. You, you never really have. Now it'll it'll settle down once this hyper growth period ends in about another twenty years or so, and Brampton's fully built out, and it'll be close to a million people by then. As will Mississauga when it's like fully. You know, it'll continue to see incremental growth, but the both cities are going to go to Mississauga is probably going to go to about nine hundred thousand. I would guess. Brampton's probably going to go to about a million. Hmm. Now, so 30, 40 years past that, you are going to see the political culture settle in, just like you've seen in Toronto, you know, post-war. It, it had, you know, large growth periods and more fluidity and you, you could say instability in its politics. But, you know, really like a guy like John Tory, if he wants to be mayor for life, <laughs> he could pretty much be mayor for life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a ton of, you know, major things happening in Toronto that, that are like, you know, I would argue that, that higher order transit is a big issue. That's, that's very much fluid in Toronto and, and housing the, the way city hall has to make some hard decisions about the direction of housing. So those are two big issues, but a lot of things in Toronto are pretty much set, you know, it's somewhat stayed. But in Brampton, it's completely different. You know, mm-hmm. you've got land use, you've got major development, you've got demographic challenges, cultural issues, you know, ethno-religious dynamics. You've got everything that's in flux. Um, and, and, you know, at the provincial level, you know, education, healthcare, which is directly tied to decision-making at City Hall. They're very much intertwined. And in a hyper-growth community that's, that's like literally exploded, you know, mm-hmm. it's quadrupled in size practically overnight and you see ethno-racial demographics you know it goes from basically being a white you know british community in in the 19 you know by the early to mid 1970s you know having a long tradition one of the oldest municipalities or one of the you know oldest settlement areas in ontario you know, again, going back to, you know, the British, the, fir- the arrival of the first British uh, in Brampton, you know, in the in the mid uh, 19th century. So the <laughs> mid 1800s and, and thing, not a lot changed, not, you know, it, you know, it just was moving on that. But then, boom, you know, thanks to Pierre Trudeau and a complete shift in immigration policy, Brampton happens to be one of the places where, you know, all of the effects of that federal shift in immigration policy were directly felt and we get to our this position that we're in now and it allows people like patrick brown to take advantage of the lack of a you know an ingrained political culture you know Mm. an established and secure political identity where where a salesman can come in and go to one constituency like let's say the South Asian constituency, the Punjabi constituency, the Tamil Canadian constituency, and tell them whatever they want to hear and sell them on, you know, a couple of empty promises. And so easily you can swing, you know, a mayoral election. Mm. Not going to like when those communities are, are more savvy, like you talk to the Italian communities and the Italian community leaders and the early Italian uh, you know, politicians, um, you know, from the 60s and 70s, and then the first Italian MPs uh, who would have been, um, you know, elected in the 70s and got gained prominence in the 80s. And they'll tell you the same thing. By the end of the 80s into the 90s, the, the various Italian voting blocks and, and constituencies, they became way more savvy. Right. 
they 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 couldn't be sold by the latest guy who came around, you know, promising this or that. You know, they developed their own political culture. The second and the third and the fourth generation, you know, formed their political values. But Brampton, it's so nascent. You know, it's this piece of clay that's still just being molded, you know, and you can sit, get anyone at the, the spinning wheel to do exactly that. Just spin, you know, to change the shape and the form of that clay overnight. But mm-hmm. when that clay hardens and shapes and it forms and it's been put in the kiln and you get, you know, a proper form, it, it's harder to do that. And, mm-hmm. and that's not there yet with Brampton. That's interesting because I, I mean, just hearing you talk about Brampton, it makes me sort of understand the politics of Guelph a little bit more because um, we are growing not as rapidly as, as Brampton, of course, few are, but um, you know, th- there is a very stable sort of political class here. Um, you know, you, you go to city council meetings, you see a lot of the same bases come and delegate a lot of the same groups have sort of been embedded here for decades. Um, it, it, it's just, it's, when you kind of don't have that anchor, it makes it a bit easier for someone to come in from the outside to, to shake things up. That one part that, you know, with these major demographic shifts, you get a lot of political insecurity. So, you know, a, a lot of, and, and a lot of it is tied to that newcomer dynamic that mm. Brampton probably, if we had accurate uh, demographic data that, you know, where the under the census undercount was, you know, taken into consideration because you have a phenomenon called illegal secondary suites, these basement suites where where tens of thousands of newcomers of, of mostly immigrant Canadians or immigrants to to Canada, you know, are, are dwelling. If, if you if you accounted for all of that, Brampton's probably somewhere between 75 and 80 percent non-white. Mm relatively new residents, you know, and uh, as I said in a recent editorial about Patrick Brown, it's very easy to manipulate and exploit those, those newcomer groups, right? They're, they, they don't understand what their priorities might be. They're misled by sort of so-called community leaders who claim to, you know, represent, you know, these constituencies of voters, these constituencies of residents, you know, maybe through the local temple or through another cultural organization or through an emerging, you know, business group or an emerging residence group. So these so-called, you know, local leaders who aren't local leaders at all, mm-hmm. they have their own agenda. Mm-hmm. They are working with a guy like Patrick Brown and the community that they supposedly represent can very easily be manipulated and exploited, taken advantage of politically, not just by a politician like Patrick Brown, but by these so-called community leaders that he works with to manipulate and exploit, you know, the broader communities that are, you know, supposedly represented. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, you're not going to get a lot of that when people become savvy to these things, when these things get a bit more established, when people, you know, are on to, you know, what's going on. But, but that, like I said, like, just like with the Italian community, you know, it took 20, 30, 40 years, you know, now we see, you know, you know, all of these groups of these demographics, you know, forming you know, um, political relationships and, and, and a political identity and political values that will ultimately be way better you know, for all of the individuals that are part of these constituencies of voters, you're going to lead, it's going to see, you know, decision-making and outcomes and opportunities that are way more aligned with their interests, as opposed to being exploited and manipulated by someone like Patrick Brown, who can swing an election in Brampton in 2018, making like a million false promises Mm. to every one of these groups. Oh, hey, the cricket community, I'm going to build you a world-class stadium. Oh, after I got elected, I, I refused to put any money in the budget because I'm also going to run federally for the CPC leadership. And my slogan is that I kept taxes down and I refused to expand the budget because that's what I wanted to pose as 
as a conservative, as a fiscal conservative CPC can leadership candidate. Well, how are you going to do that when you just promised these constituencies of voters in a lot of these ethnic communities who happen to be like just crazy about cricket, whether it's <laughs> the various, you know, West Indian, the various Caribbean Canadian communities, for example, like the Jamaican Canadian you know, community, or whether it's the Sri Lankan Canadian community or the Punjabi Canadian community or the broader Pakistani Canadian community, all of these people that you sold on this cricket stadium idea, because cricket is so central, it's like literally a religion to them. Well, <laughs> you know, you just duped them. Mm. You know, you, literally, you, you, you pulled the money for that project out of the budget because you didn't want to run as the CPC leader as someone who had increased taxes. Well, mm -hmm. how else are you going to build a quote, world-class cricket stadium to hold, like literally he's claiming it was going to hold the next cricket world cup. You're right. talking about a 100, 200, $300 million investment. Well, did you, did you tell those communities back in 2018? Oh, I'm also going to refuse to expand the budget. Like I'm going to refuse to raise any taxes or revenue. And if one of them said, well, then how are you going to get this cricket stadium built that you're promising us? Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Uh, you figured me out. <laughs> you, <laughs> I was selling you a false bill of goods. Right. But, you know, Wait. next time he won't be able to do that. Well, I mean, that's kind of where I want to get to next is, I mean, it, it's still kind of up in the air. It seems doubtful that he'll be able to get back into the Patrick Brown. I mean, get back into the, the conservative leadership race theoretically because nominations don't close till next month um you know he could run for re-election but i mean given everything that's happened locally and nationally um does does patrick brown have a political future in brampton well what i'm hoping is that you know your your focus which is a great focus you know and, and some of the questions that you're asking which are like those are all the salient these are all the right you know, areas to be exploring when you, when you look at, you know, what the, the importance of local journalism, you know, covering these types of communities, why it's so important to have, you know, people on the ground day to day reporting on this stuff, not parachuting in, you know, once a year when there's a scandal, <laughs> you don't even have a clue like what's up and what's down. But to, to, to your question, I hope that he does run for mayor. And I hope as a sign of Brampton's continued maturity and, it, and its, its path forward to a lot of the things that I was talking about, to being more secure, you know, to being more able to form the types of political culture, the political values, the, the expectations of your governance, of your politics, of your politicians that are going to ensure and guarantee true opportunity that, they, that the citizens, that the voters will be in control of their own destiny. They will shape their own community. They will shape the opportunities for their children. Not these fly-by-night politicians. No, that's what a democracy is all about. It's, it's the citizens directing citizenship and directing the decision-making. And I hope for all of those reasons to, to kind of you know, establish and, and continue this slow maturation, this slow evolution, you know, into a more stable, you know, political culture, you know, a, a more stable type of, you know, local government, because you have um, all of the pillars of, of community, of citizenship, of engagement, of advocacy, you know, high voter turnout, really, really, you know, knowledgeable citizens and residents, people who are not going to be duped, people who know what's up and what's down, all of this stuff. That's why I would like to see him run again and then get booted out by the citizens. And I think if we see one of the candidates whose names are, are like, you know, uh, liberal MP Brampton uh, MP, Ruby Sahota, her name is being thrown around quite a bit this week as a possible candidate for mayor. Mm. And love to see Ruby Sahota run. And I mean, I'm supposed to be objective, <laughs> but I would love to see, you know, she's a Punjabi Canadian. She's a woman. Her roots are in Brampton. 
her family has done a lot in Brampton. She has done a lot in Brampton. She lives in Brampton. She's raised her family in Brampton. She knows Brampton. She's represented the city in Ottawa. She's a lawyer, well-educated. She's smart. Uh, I would love to see someone like that blow Patrick Brown out of the water. Mm-hmm. Your message that, no, you know what? Brampton voters, they know what's going on. Brampton voters are not as easily duped as you think as they are. They're getting more mature. They care. They know how to take control of their own destiny. I, I, you know, again, like I would love, I would love to see, you know, it doesn't have to be Ruby Soden. I'm not saying that I'm, you know, supporting her, <laughs> endorsing her or anything like that, but more here around that sort of the, the, the culture around that type of a candidate. Uh, and I think like, just like when Susan Fennell got booted out with 12% to the vote in 2014 and Brampton voters showed like, we're not going to put up with the abuse mm. that you put us through. Mm-hmm. They're going to show you at the polls that, that we Brampton residents, Brampton citizens, Brampton voters, we will determine what's good and what's not, not good for us. And I hope they do the same thing this year. So as to whether does he have a future or not, I mean, with a good candidate, he he can easily be be he's such a terrible candidate. People mistake the fact that he's like a good salesman, right? Mm. That he hustles. So even in the CPC narrative, which it just drives me crazy, like that none of the so-called talking heads, you know, ever point out there's a huge difference between some you know hyper ambitious manic person. You know, Alex P. Keaton, who's wanted to be president, <laughs> prime minister since he was 10, you know, running around like a used car salesman selling memberships. There's a huge difference between that and a, quote, leader, mm-hmm. like a person who is going to lead our country. You know what, Patrick Brown? Why don't you get a job as a salesman? Go, <laughs> go work in real estate. Go sell used cars. Go sell software. Go sell advertising. That's what you're good at. You're good at signing people up for stuff, usually, you know, manipulating them to sign them up. Since when did that type of, you know, a personality and that type of, a, you know, an ambition that, that this manic hyper-driven, oh, he's so good at selling memberships. Yeah. And people say, that's why he's a good politician. Really? Okay, you're great at selling memberships. You can run around Canada, you know, organizing people and duping most of them into buying up five, ten, fifteen dollar dollar, you know, memberships. What policy have you put forward? Mm. I'd love to go and ask one of these people that you sold a membership to, what's Patrick Brown gonna do for you? Like, give me one tangible thing, for example, on the environment, you know, in terms of green policies. In terms of like, what are we going to do about, um, you know, the future of the energy sector? What are we really, really going to do to transition, you know, in a way that we don't leave, you know, those who are part of the, the, the carbon-based energy economy. So people who've worked in those industries for a long time, we're not going to leave them behind, but we're going to transition to the energy economy of the future. Show me all of your policies. You would need a very cohesive set of strategies that's a very complex question what i just laid out you mm. want to be prime minister show me where you've made it clear what you're going to do you know with with housing where, where have you done that you know with like, I, I could with with indigenous issues with like you know with health care we're in a health care crisis like you know you sold all these memberships what did i get so what did i get for that membership i just bought where where are these policies where is your leadership? Where is your governance? Like right. nothing. And, and our media, wh- when does our media ever ask that question? <laughs> and these guys want, you know, oh, they, he only wants to become the prime minister. <laughs> but I mean, this is sort of the essential conundrum of our times. You talked about Trump before and, I, and I, you know. Trump he, is no business being a politician. Oh, I, I completely agree. But I mean, he, that was the salesman stuff, right? Everyone talks about a great salesman yeah, he is, I but what's he selling? For Justin Trudeau. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, like Justin Trudeau is like an outdoor ed teacher. He teaches like, <laughs> and, 
karate. I'm not quite sure what else he taught. Like, like what, like show me what it was up until the point that you became prime minister that would have like given me a, some confidence that you can like lead one of the most dynamic G20 countries, like countries in general, you know, in the world. Like, yeah. You know, did, did, did we ever ask that? Like, you know, hokey things like oh, I'm going to legalize cannabis, mm. you know, to get the young voters back after Michael Ignatiev turned a lot of them off. That, mm. That's your plan. And, and look at look at like the way they approach cannabis. Oh, uh, we don't really know how we're going to roll it out. We'll leave it to the uh, the provinces. Yeah. And then the provinces were like, oh, we don't really know how we're going to roll it out. We'll leave it to the municipalities. Right. You know, I mean, I'm not against legalized cannabis, but it was just an example of like, you know, what a clear shtick, what a clear ploy it was by Trudeau. <laughs> right. You know, with, with, with like no policy, like we didn't even know how the courts were going to handle cannabis cases, you know, impaired cases. We just had the Brady Robertson case in Caledon with all kinds of constitutional questions unanswered, all kinds of case law, all sorts of precedents and sentencing kind of up in the air. And yeah, you know, lawyers would say, well, you need cases to come forward and then case law gets developed. Okay. But you also have a thing called the criminal code, you know, and should we be... <laughs> the criminal code and adapting it because THC, you know, the active ingredient in cannabis is very unique. Mm. And maybe we need to take a look at, you know, some of the criminal code areas around impaired driving, you know, other aspects of the criminal code around legalized cannabis, you name it. I didn't see a lot of sophisticated conversation around that. Yeah. I didn't see a lot of sophisticated conversation, detailed conversation, nuanced policy discussions around various types of funding pieces. What are we going to do for policing? There's clearly going to be, you know, enhanced policing requirements. There's going to be a broadened, you know, public safety element with, with legal cannabis. Did we have conversations about the funding around all of that? No, he, he threw some spaghetti against the wall, trying to figure out how he's going to get elected in 2015. Hey, legal cannabis, that's a great idea. Oh, ranked ballots, you know, moving away from the first past the post system. That sounds like a good, you know, thing to throw out there to Canadians, especially younger <laughs> Canadians. What, right. happened to what happened to his promise and his commitment to exploring ranked ballots, a more representative, you know, instead of first past the post? Like he abandoned that after two years. Yeah, I know about 12 people in Guelph. You don't want to get them started on that. Uh, uh, my big problems with municipal government is that, you know, what is it? London's the only Ontario after the legislation, you know, under, I believe it was the Municipal Act or it could have been the Ontario Election. Yeah, it would be the Elections Act on Ontario, the Provincial Elections Act, the Municipal Elections Act, you know, in Ontario. Um, municipalities could have moved away from first past the post to, to, to ranked balloting. Mm. If I'm not mistaken, I think London, I could be wrong, but I think London was the only municipality that I saw that took advantage of that. Most municipalities didn't even consider it. They didn't even like really do any work to, yeah. to see it implemented. London did it. And then there were, I think three yeah. that passed referendums to, to put it into effect for this year before it was taken away. Right. Right. I, I, I didn't see any referendums, for example, in Brampton or Mississauga. Right. No, I think they were mostly like, you know, smaller places like I was going to say like London, but London is not a smaller place. Let me wrap up by asking you this. Um, you know, you're coming off of coming. Of, of covering these like last four years, which have sort of been like directed from the scandals coming out of the mayor's office. How would you feel about spending the next four years to, like being more policy driven and like attacking some of these like promises and, and how they're going to accomplish like, the pointer daily? Yeah. Or if subscribe, <laughs> you, you'll see that probably two thirds, three quarters of the con. Well, it, it depends, you know, when there's a big scandal that kind of overtakes the coverage for a while. But overall, two thirds, three quarters of, of, of what we do, our journalism, it's heavy policy, mm -hmm. whether it's how are you going to transition your diesel bus fleet to a, an electric, you know, um, hybrid bus fleet? 
Like, what is the strategy? What's your funding model for it? How are you going to create, you know, electric infrastructure, charging infrastructure? How are you going to redesign your transit system? What do you, like I said, what are you going to do for funding? What are you going to do in terms of transit, the transit culture? You know, how are you going to expand to, to go into like, you know, segments of the population that would not maybe use transit, but maybe if it was a greener fleet, you know, they would consider it. How are you going to design more complete communities to expand transit? Because it's very tough to run transit out into sprawl. You know, mm. all, you know, we, we've covered those issues. You give me any issue on a policy level, healthcare funding. How are you going to raise the money for the local share of the second hospital that Brampton needs, right? The, the local community, the city hall has to come up with a capital share mm-hmm. for hospital project. Most people don't realize it. I get yin yangs all the time messaging me, hey, San, the municipality has nothing to do with healthcare. That's a provincial jurisdiction. <laughs> oh, really? So you don't know that upwards of 25%, generally it's 25% of the capital cost of a new hospital project has to be provided by the municipality, by the community. It can be split up. So the hospital network, so the hospital management or, you know, organization. So in Brampton, it's William Osler. Quite mm. often, we'll try to raise 50% of the local share and City Hall will be responsible for 50%. But for a billion dollar hospital, that's still $125 million for City Hall. So mm. from a policy point of view, how are you going to shape a budget that's going to allow for, let's say, over 10 years, you've got to raise... $12 million a year. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I could go on and on and on. So yeah, we do the policy stuff simultaneously <laughs> with unfortunate scandal BS. <laughs> if, if I did not have to cover these soap opera scandals and just focus on the policy side of what's going to make, you know, our cities more efficient, you know, what's going to create more job opportunities, economic development, what's going to make sure that, you know, public safety is looked after, what's going to make sure that planning, land use, growth, development is done, you know, with a strategic, smart kind of approach. You know, I could go on and on and on in all the policy areas that in the municipal space we need to be focusing on. Mm-hmm. Pointer, we sure as hell do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, just to, to wrap up, Sam, it's been great talking to you. Uh, I hope uh, maybe we've encouraged people to take a closer look at Brampton and uh, maybe unplug some of those preconceived notions. It's it's a dynamic place, as I think we, we've sort of demonstrated today. And uh, best of luck with for you and all the staff at the Pointer. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. It is appreciated, even, even up here in Guelph. Thanks, Adam. And once again, that was San Graywall. You can stay up to date with local political news from Brampton, Mississauga at thepointer.com. That's T-H-E-P-O-I-N-T-E-R.com. And you can follow San Graywall on social media at San Graywall 1. That is S-A-N-G-R-E-W-A-L number 1 on Twitter. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Source's Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time.